The content of this program is intended for people who are blind and print impaired. Hello and welcome to our April 2021 edition of Heard Any Good Books Lately? A program from the North Carolina Reading Service. I'm George Douglas. Thanks so much for joining me today. This program is brought to you by the Friends of the North Carolina Library for the Blind and Physically Handicapped, an organization of citizens, volunteers, and patrons, all interested in supporting the library and the services it provides. The Friends Group was founded in 1989 and now has more than 300 members across North Carolina. If you'd like to join the Friends Group yourself, we'll have information on how to do that later in this program. But this program is all about books, with special emphasis on those available from the North Carolina Library for the Blind. The library has more than 86,000 titles in its collection. Books and magazines are available in large print, braille, and talking books as well. The library has more than 11,000 patrons across the state. And if you're not a patron but are interested in becoming one, I'll have more information at the end of this program. Well, this month we're going to take a look at some of the most popular books checked out in the month of March at the North Carolina Library for the Blind. We're going to begin the program today with a book from a very popular series about the Amish. This is a book entitled The Amish Widow's Secret by Samantha Price. Here's the plot. Cassandra and her boyfriend had left the Amish community, but when he was killed in a tragic accident she returned to the safety of her home. When her parents discover she's pregnant, they're horrified. They keep it hushed up and send her to an old aunt who will help her find a couple to adopt the baby. While she's at her aunt's, will Cassandra still do things her own way? Will the cover-up surrounding the baby destroy Cassandra's life? and ruin the new relationship she's formed with a certain young Amish man, you will love this wonderful story about love, lost, and love found, and second chances. Again, the book is called The Amish Widow's Secret by Samantha Price. Now, in the top ten, you might say, of books uh, this past month at the Library for the Blind. There's another book by Samantha Price as well. She is very popular in the month of March, and uh, so I'm going to go ahead and read that one right now as well. This is called The Amish Firefighter's Widow, and again by Samantha Price. Here's the plot on this one. When Katie's volunteer firefighter husband dies in the line of duty, she is heartbroken. Not only have her two young sons lost their father, but the child she is carrying will never know him. Her husband's best friend, Mark, steps in to take care of Katie and her children. Many months pass, and Mark is offered an opportunity away from Lancaster County. While not wanting to leave Katie and the children behind, he makes his feelings known. Katie tells Mark she would never marry again, and if she did... It would never be to another firefighter. Katie urges him to take the job. Months turn into years before Katie realizes that she has made a terrible mistake. When Mark finally returns, 
Has Kate left things too late? Well, the only way you'll find out is by reading or listening to this book. It's The Amish Firefighter's Widow, and that also is by Samantha Price. The next uh, book we want to take a look at is uh, is a novel, but a very real-sounding novel. It's called All the Young Men, a memoir of love, AIDS, and chosen family in the American South, and it's by Ruth Coker Burks. First of all, just a little bit of background on the author, because I think that's appropriate here. Ruth Coker Burks was a young, single mom in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and she cared for people with AIDS when no one else would in the 1980s and 1990s. Well, with no medical background, Ruth single-handedly created a network of care and saw to the final resting places of roughly a thousand men abandoned by families and neglected by medical professionals. For 30 years, Ruth has been an advocate for the LGBTQ community. She currently resides in northwest Arkansas. Now, here's the plot for the book, All the Young Men. In 1986, 26-year-old Ruth Coker Burks visits a friend at the hospital when she notices that the door to one of the hospital rooms is painted red. She witnesses nurses drawing straws to see who would tend to the patient inside, all of them reluctant to enter the room. Out of impulse, Ruth herself enters the quarantine space and immediately begins to care for the young man who cries for his mother in the last moments of his life. Before she can even process what she's doing or what she's done, word spreads in the community that Ruth is the only person willing to help these young men afflicted by AIDS and is called upon to nurse them. As she forges deep friendships with the men she helps, she works tirelessly to find them housing and jobs, even searching for funeral homes willing to take their bodies. It sounds like a, a wonderful, touching, and very engaging story. It's by Ruth Coker Burks. That's B-U-R-K-S. And it's called All the Young Men, A Memoir of Love, AIDS, and Chosen Family in the American South. Now let's move on to a couple of more novels here. This one is entitled The Cousins, and it's by Karen M. McManus. Here's the plot. Millie, Aubrey, and Jonah's story are cousins, but they barely know each other, and they've never even met their grandmother. Rich and reclusive, she disinherited their parents before they were born, so when they each receive a letter inviting them to work at her island resort for the summer, they're pretty surprised and a bit curious. Their parents are all clear on one point. Not going is not an option. Well, this could be the opportunity to get back into grandmother's good graces. But when the cousins arrive on the island, it's immediately clear that she has different plans for them. And the longer they stay, the more they realize how mysterious and dark their family's past is. The entire story family has secrets. Whatever pulled them apart years ago 
is not over. And this summer, the cousins will learn everything. Sounds pretty interesting to me. That is a book called The Cousins by Karen M. McManus. Now let's look at a book by Charlotte McConaughey called Migrations. Here's the story. Franny Stone has always been the kind of woman who is able to love but unable to stay. Leaving behind everything but her research gear, she arrives in Greenland with a singular purpose, to follow the last Arctic turns in the world on what might be their final migration to Antarctica. Well, Franny talks her way onto a fishing boat, and she and the crew set sail, traveling even further from shore and safety. But as Franny's history begins to unspool, a passionate love affair, an absent family, a devastating crime, it becomes clear that she is chasing more than just birds. When Franny's dark secrets catch up with her, how much is she willing to risk for one more chance at redemption? Epic and intimate, heartbreaking and galvanizing, Charlotte McConaughey's Migrations is an ode to a, a disappearing world and a breathtaking page-turner about the possibility of hope against all odds. Again, the book is called Migrations, and it's by Charlotte McConaughey. Now I'm going to read a review by a book that is almost brand new. It's, uh, it's a book called This Time Next Year, and it's by Sophie Cousins. It was just reviewed in uh, December 2020 by Nora Peel. Here's the story about this one. Minnie Cooper, well, knows that she has a terrible groan-inducing name. Sounds like a car, doesn't it? But she also knows she was supposed to be named Quinn. While in labor in a London hospital on December 31, 1989, Minnie's mom, Connie, confided her choice of baby name to her roommate, Tara Hamilton, who was going through her own difficult labor. Imagine Connie's dismay the next day when she learned that Tara had her baby at the stroke of midnight, complete with huge fanfare, press coverage, and a cash prize for giving birth to the first 1990s baby in London, and she named him Quinn. Well, obviously, Connie couldn't use that name anymore, so she named her daughter Minnie. And just like that, all the built-in luck flew out the window. Well, now Minnie is about to turn 30, and she's always been a bit resentful of that mysterious Quinn Hamilton who stole her name and her luck. She's had a horrible run of disastrous New Year's Eve birthdays over the course of her life, and her 30th doesn't seem to be much better. After she loses her coat, collides with a waiter, is vomited on, and gets locked in a bathroom all on the same evening. Things turn around when she meets a handsome stranger the following morning, and they watch the first sunrise of the new year together, only to discover that this charismatic, attractive man is none other, other than, you guessed it, Quinn Hamilton, famed name-stealer and birthday twin. 
Unfortunately, Minnie's bad luck has extended to the small business she launched with her best friend a few years earlier, delivering homemade savory pies to care homes and the elderly. Minnie adores the work as well as her employees and her clients, but they just can't seem to make ends meet when they're relying on grants and donations to survive. Once Minnie's path crosses with Quinn, her luck seems to be changing for the better. But can it last? And what happens if Quinn's seemingly charmed life isn't so perfect after all? This time next year is a slow-building romance novel that is just as much about self-discovery as it is about the love story. Readers especially will enjoy the flashbacks to New Year's past as they discover the many times that many and Quinn's fates have already been entwined, even without them realizing it. Both are realistically flawed, complex characters, and the supporting players, especially Minnie's employees, are particularly funny and well-drawn. As a bonus, debut novelist Sophie Cousins includes recipes for Minnie's savory pies and fruitcake at the back of the book, so readers can try their hand at recreating her delicious dishes and maybe capture some of her newfound luck in the process. It sounds like a pretty fun story, and you get uh, you get some good recipes with it as well. That is a book reviewed by Nora Peel in uh, the end of 2020, and the book is called This Time Next Year, the debut novel by Sophie Cousins. And you're listening to Heard Any Good Books Lately, an exclusive production of the North Carolina Reading Service. I'm George Douglas. Thanks so much for joining me. It's great to have you with me today. Now we're going to take a look at a, another new book. Then this one is new, too. It was just released in December 2020. The book is called The Saint Makers, How the Catholic Church and a War Hero Inspire a Journey of Faith. And it's by Joe Drape. Sports writer Joe Drape, who wrote American Pharaoh, by the way, provides an illuminating exploration of the heroism of Korean War military chaplain Emil Kapon. Now, I'm going to spell that because I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. K-A-P-A-U-N, Kapon, who lived from 1916 to 1951 and ongoing efforts to canonize him in this meandering history cum memoir. Capon received a posthumous Medal of Honor for his efforts to look after the troops he was assigned to, even after he was captured by the Chinese. Eventually, an ailing Capon, who was viewed by his captors as an ideological threat, was taken away from his fellow POWs, and died alone. In 1999, Father John Hotz, inspired by Capon's commitment to his faith and to his fellow captives, began amassing evidence in support of Capon's candidacy as a saint. Now, this led, in 2020, to a scheduled discussion of his worthiness that was derailed by the COVID-19 pandemic. 
As Drape researched Capon and the elaborate processes the Catholic Church has for assessing potential saints, his own faith in the power of miracles was bolstered by miraculous medical recoveries, such as that of a 12-year-old Avery Gerlman, who Drape believes was saved from mysterious organ failure years ago due to her father's prayers to Capon. Unfortunately, the shifts to Drape's own experiences, which include an extended account of his Catholic upbringing, tend to distract from Campon's story and the otherwise moving account of courage and faith in the killing fields of Korea. Faith-minded history buffs will best appreciate this. It sounds like you're really well. Needless to say, this is not a novel. This is a very real story about a very real man who did some amazing things. And uh, it was one of the most popular books at the Library for the Blind in the month of March, so I think you would enjoy it. It's called The Saint Makers, How the Catholic Church and a War Hero Inspired a Journey of Faith. And it's by Joe Drape, who is the author of the very popular book, American Pharaoh. Just a few minutes ago, we listened to a debut novel by Sophie Cousins, and now we're going to listen to another debut novel, uh, this time by an author by the name of Graham Norton, and this book is called, very simply, Holding. If you are unfamiliar with Graham Norton, and you may be, you have missed out on one of the funniest and most clever comic personalities on the planet. He has had a long-running variety talk show that can be seen on BBC America here in the States. Imagine a British version of Jimmy Fallon and Jimmy Kimmel with a dash of Johnny Carson, plus a quick wit and sense of humor that only those Brits seem to have. Well, now following two memoirs, Norton has penned his very first novel. Much to my surprise, says the reviewer, it is a mystery. Even more impressive is that it really, really is good. He has set his book in the tiny Irish village of Dunneen, and the story plays out like a mix of your favorite tea-cozy mystery with a touch of Agatha Christie. The characters are all colorful personalities, yet a feeling of dread and long-buried secrets lies beneath the soil of Dunneen. And all is not well. Our protagonist, and quite an interesting one at that, is the overweight and underappreciated Sergeant P.J. Collins. Now, he is about to go through a grand awakening, and this sleepy little remote village will never be the same when the current case he is working on comes to light. P.J. is a sad, lonely man who lives by the mantra, that there were no happy endings in this life, so why bother looking for one? Well, he will finally get a chance to be noticed by his superior, and more surprisingly, by someone of the opposite sex. The case that launches his dull career involves bones that are unearthed at a local farm. While the police await the forensic results, speculation abounds throughout Dunneen. The popular opinion is that they're the bones of Tommy Burke, some of whom believe may have been a serial killer. While there's no evidence to support that, one thing is provable. Tommy was having affairs with two different women, both of whom are at the top of P.J.'s suspect list. 
One of these ladies is part of the trio known as the Ross Girls from Ard Carrig. The youngest sister, Evelyn Ross, was rumored to have been connected with Tommy. It is possible that he broke her heart so badly that she may have wanted vengeance for his betrayal. The only thing saving her from being directly blamed for his death is the fact that she is overjoyed that the bones may be his. It might validate for her that he didn't leave her and, in fact, had been near her all along. The other woman is Brid Royden, on whose farm the bones were found. Another set of bones belonging to an infant are also discovered there. The question remains, who buried these bones, and what is the significance, if any, of them being on Brid's farm? To further muddy the situation, P.J. actually has a sexual dalliance with Brid during his investigation. The fact that Brid has a philandering husband who is currently having an affair with a much younger nurse allows her to enjoy her straying guilt-free. P.J. barrels through this case as it begins to heat up. However, he will not be prepared when his own caretaker, Mrs. Meany, confesses to him how and why she knows the identity of the infant whose bones were unearthed. Holding is a very clever mystery, a slow burn that ably depicts small-town life and the impact that a tragedy has on all of its residents. The book's title remains somewhat ambiguous. A holding is literally a piece of land used for agricultural purposes, but can also refer to a place to keep people, like a prison cell. No one represents this latter definition better than P.J. Collins, a man whose quiet existence in this tiny village could easily feel like a prison sentence. The best thing about this novel is that I quickly forgot that it was written by Graham Norton, the celebrity, and grew to accept him as Graham Norton, the mystery writer. I can only hope that a PBS or BBC America miniseries based on holding becomes a reality someday. Now, that was written by, I should have mentioned this at the beginning, but that was written by a reviewer named Ray Palin. And it was written uh, in September of 2017. So it's not a brand new book now, but it was the first novel to be written by a very popular British TV personality named Graham Norton. Now on Heard Any Good Books Lately, let's take a look at a, a book that's a compilation of stories that sounds pretty interesting. The book is entitled The Office of Historical Corrections, a novella and stories by Danielle Evans. Danielle Evans' first story collection, Before You Suffocate Your Own Fool Self, was a critical favorite, garnering awards and gaining her recognition as one of the National Book Foundation's five under 35 honorees after its publication in 2010. Well, now, ten years later, Evans is back with a much-anticipated follow-up. It's called The Office of Historical Corrections, which contains a half-dozen exquisite stories, short stories they are, and the equally memorable title, Novella. As she did in her earlier book, Evans focuses her attention largely on characters who are young, black, and figuring out their place in this country. 
often while also navigating a more personal terrain of love and loss. The Office of Historical Corrections, as its name suggests, is concerned most directly with righting the wrongs of history. In a narrative that skillfully walks the line between satire and reality, a line that is all too blurry in 2020. In the alternate reality posited by this novella, the federal government once started a job protection program of sorts for PhDs in the humanities, offering them public service jobs if they were unable to find tenure-track positions in academia. By the time the story picks up, the program has diminished drastically to lack of funding. Its only vestige is the Institute for Public History, whose staff members, like the narrator Cassie, have a mission to identify historical inaccuracies on signs and textbooks and, most importantly, on public monuments and plaques, casting light on the real victims and villains of history. Cassie is sent reluctantly to a one-time sundown town outside Milwaukee in order to rein in her colleague and frenemy, Genevieve, who has become a bit of a loose cannon when it comes to righting historical wrongs. The opening story, Happily Ever After, also touches on representations of history as a young woman employed at the gift shop in a replica of the Titanic flirts with stardom when she's invited to participate in a music video shoot on the ship. In Boys Go to Jupiter, Claire, a clueless white undergraduate, finds herself at the center of a political firestorm on her campus when she thoughtlessly wears a Confederate flag bikini on spring break and then even more thoughtlessly lashes out at her black dorm mate, who objects when a photo goes viral. Throughout these considerations of our country's history are intertwined with the more personal history of the characters Evans so sensitively draws. For many, that history centers on tragedies of loss and grief. Even clueless Claire of hashtag bad bikini ideas fame has a complicated backstory that helps illuminate her admittedly complicated response to current events. In the gut-wrenching story, Richard of York gave battle in vain. A young woman's family tragedy colors her a young woman's family tragedy colors her own response to her friend's impending wedding. And what is appears to be the most emotionally devastating story, anything could disappear. A young woman on the verge of starting over finds her life changing almost imaginably when she becomes the caretaker of a toddler abandoned on a cross-country greyhound bus. Evan's stories are emotionally authentic and perceptive, extraordinarily accomplished in their approach to characterization and theme, and refreshingly free of gimmicks. The pieces collected here feel both perfectly of the moment and classic, the kinds of stories that students will be studying and cherishing decades from now in order to understand not only the work of a skillful practitioner of the craft, but also this particular moment in our nation's history. Sounds like a very timely and interesting collection of stories. 
And that was a review by Nora Peel, who uh, we uh, read a review by just a little while ago. And that was done in 2020. So this is a brand new book as well. It's called The Office of Historical Corrections, a novella and stories by Danielle Evans. And that's all the time we have for this month's edition of Heard Any Good Books Lately. I'm George Douglas. Hope you enjoyed the program. If you'd like more information about how to become a patron of the North Carolina Library for the Blind and Physically Handicapped, simply Google or search for North Carolina Library for for the Blind. You can call toll-free, 888-388-2460. You can also use those numbers to join the Friends of the North Carolina Library for the Blind. This program is intended for people who are blind and print impaired. Heard Any Good Books Lately will be available right after the broadcast at our website, ncreadingservice.org. So long until next time.